Hello and welcome to The Life of a Scientist, the podcast where we interview scientists to find out how their life really works. I'm Bia. And I'm Bia. And we are two biomedical students from Portugal. During our first season, we will be exploring the conventional research career by interviewing scientists at various stages of academia. From master student to lab technician, PhD student, postdoc, senior researcher, all the way to principal investigator. Today our guest is Dr. Daniela Pereira, a senior researcher at the Neurobiology of Action Lab at the Champalimau Foundation in Lisbon, Portugal. She got her bachelor's in biochemistry at the University of Coimbra, where she also obtained her PhD in cellular biology. Welcome, Dr. Daniela. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? We're good. Uh, we're good too. <laughs> so can you summarize your academic journey for us? Sure. Um, so as you were just saying, um, I started uh, my studies in Coimbra. By the way, I'm, I'm also, I was born in Coimbra. I, I've lived there all my life until I, I went to university there. And I, I did a biochemistry degree and then continued to do my PhD studies uh, there in Coimbra. Um, at the time, in the, in the lab of Dr. Carlos Duarte, where I was studying uh, the mechanisms of, of glutamate uh, neurotransmission uh, using uh, isolated nerve terminals of the hippocampus. And um, later on, I, I decided to go abroad. And once I finished my PhD, I, I moved to New York, uh, where, I did, where I did a first postdoc in uh, NYU Medical School uh, in the lab of Dr. Moses Chow. And at that point, I was, I was interested in, in studying neurotrophin signaling. And neurotrophins were some of the molecules that I, that I have studied how could modulate glutamate transmission during my PhD. And that's why I, I, I was interested in looking at these molecules and how, how they were signaling um, into the cell. Um, but I realized that my main interest was, was really neurotransmission. So I, um, after this first short postdoc, I, I went to do a, a second postdoc at Columbia University, still in New York, uh, with Dr. David Solzer. And I, uh, I was uh, where I decided to study neurotransmission, but in a different system, so in the dopaminergic system. Um, and I spent a few years in this lab. And then for personal reasons, I, I wanted to come back to Portugal. And I, um, I joined the lab of Dr. Rui Costa, that you just mentioned, is the Neurobiology of Action Lab at Champalimau Research, uh, where I'm studying things still very related to uh, dopamine transmission. Um, but um, um, basically, I'm, I'm studying more um, how um, uh, how synapses in in the in the striatum can be um, um, involved in, in in motor learning. And uh, I didn't mention, but actually, I didn't join just one lab at Champalimau. I joined two. The other lab is the lab of Dr. Inbal Israeli, which is a structure function lab, which is very is pretty much fo focused on, on studying synapses, uh, while Dr. Hui Costa's lab is more focused on studying movement and motor learning and etc. So I'm kind of uh, in the connection of, of these both, both, both of these topics. You kind of already answered our next question, but it's about what you're doing at the moment, what you're researching right now, and what you've been working on lately. 
Yeah, so I can I can go a little bit deeper into that. Um, I um, so as I was saying, I'm um, I'm still very interested. In this this was kind of uh, something in common throughout all my career. Is I, I was very interested in how neurons communicate, and um, particularly how how neuronal connections work, and um, how can they be modified uh, to produce learning, basically. And right now, I'm very interested in, in motor learning. Um, so just to kind of put this a little bit into context, uh, uh, there, there are a group of interconnected brain regions called the basal ganglia. And these are uh, known to be very important for, for motor learning. And um, basically, the, the cortical uh, inputs into the basal ganglia, basically the axons that come from the cortex, connect to... Uh, cells in the striatum, which is the major input region of this ganglia, uh, and these are uh, the principal cells are called the medium spiny neurons, and um, and then this goes on. The medium spiny neurons uh, project to other regions of the basal ganglia that then project back to the cortex. So this is a, a loop, uh, which again is involved not only in movement but but also in other things. Um, and uh, this, this this neuronal connection between the cortex and the medium spiny neurons of the striatum uh, is thought to be very important for motor learning. Previous people in the lab have shown that um, you have these synapses undergo plasticity uh, when you learn a particular motor skill. And this has been also um, demonstrated in other labs. Um, now, uh, while we know that they change functionally, we don't know if they change structurally. Uh, and this is important, why? So in the hippocampus, where this, this has been studied a lot, we know that a synapse that becomes stronger also becomes bigger, right? But this is not known in the striatum. And this is one of the things that I, that I want to find out. And why is this interesting? Because if you, are, if you have an increased um, strength of connection between the, the cortex and the striatum, uh, if you see an increase in, in the plasticity, increase in synaptic strength, you don't know at this point whether that increase is due to an, an increase in the number of synapses or synaptic or neuronal connections that are uh, formed, or an increase in the strength of synapses that already exist, right? And if we are able to know whether, you know, it, it will be interesting to know whether whether this functional, functional changes actually reflect just, just a change in number or a change in basically the strength and the size of synapses that were already there. There's also a third possibility, which is basically how patterns of, of, of synapses can contribute to overall transmission between, between neurons from the cortex and uh, the striatum. So the first thing that I'm interested in is to see whether there is the same um, structure-function relationship in the striatum that we see in the hippocampus. And, and because that would kind of tell us that size is a proxy for strength, right? And the idea is to basically train animals uh, in a motor learning assay. Uh, and we have an interesting um, assay that was developed in the lab where animals uh, need to press a lever uh, to obtain a reward. And the lever is located at the corner of the box and it becomes gradually retracted. So the animal needs to, it's a challenge for him to be able to press the lever. 
And especially if you have to press a lever a certain number of times in rapid succession to obtain a reward. Then animals learn the task, you can stop. So basically you can sacrifice the animals at an early point or a late point um, uh, where we know that different regions of the striatum are involved and then look at what happens to the synapses of the medium spine neurons, right? And then you can see whether you have, you know, increased number, you have increased size, you have a change in pattern because one possibility is that if you basically are able to uh, in increase the strength of a lot of synapses along the same dendritic branch that can actually uh, make, uh, increase the efficiency of transmission a, a lot, um, instead of requiring, you know, a lot more neurons to connect to the same and to uh, spike at the same time into the MSN, right? Basically, if you concentrate a lot of strong synapses in the same branch, that can equally um, drive the, the postsynaptic neuron to, to, to spike and to, you know, basically uh, create a new electrical signal that will go on in the, in the circuit. So basically, that's the idea. So we're, we, we want to see how synapses change in terms of number, density, uh, and pattern when you have motor learning, uh, which will be important to, to understand how you can code motor skills in terms of circuits in the basal ganglion. I hope that was not too long or too complicated. <laughs> no, that was uh, great. It's a very complicated subject, so I guess you need to explain it in depth. Yes. <laughs> Especially for non-neuroscience people like me. <laughs> okay. And uh, how do you uh, think your research will impact the general public? What is the importance of uh, knowing uh, how motor skills are coded? Yeah, so so it's it's I think it's pretty important to understand the mechanisms of, of how we generate and learn new movements, right? Because these motor skills are, you know, when you think of a motor skill, walking is a motor skill, right? I mean, something mm -hmm. as basic as, as walking um, needs to be coded in in your in your um, in your neuronal circuits, and uh, and you know, I th I think. Um, these are these are skills that last you for a for a lifetime. So if you understand the mechanisms of how this works, you you know you can also. I mean, for me, I have to say that this by itself is a big motivation because I like to understand how things work. But it's also important to know the basics uh, in order then to understand what may go wrong when you have uh, these certain disorders. And unfortunately, we know that there's a lot of different motor disorders like Parkinson's disease, which affects uh, a huge proportion of the worldwide population. Um, and Parkinson's disease is exactly a disorder that affects uh, neurons in uh, neuronal connections in the striatum. So if we better understand how these connections work and how they are uh, modified to produce motor skills and motor learning, uh, that puts us at a better position to try to uh, fix things when, when they go wrong. You were saying that one of your motivations is just to to learn how things work, that you just like to, to figure out how things work. Uh, what are just your general motivations to study this specific subject? Yeah, so I'm, as I was saying, um, for me, one of my main motivations has been to really understand how neurons communicate uh, and how that works at a cellular level, at, at 
how, how neurotransmission occurs and how that then, you know, how that then transmits into a, to a higher level of, of how circuits work and how, how that influences learning, like what I'm studying right now. I find it also interesting, of course, for the clinical implications of your work, but I have to say that was not, that is not usually my main motivation. A lot of people do have that as a drive, but my main motivation has always been really to understand how something works to the basic molecular and cellular level. And so what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so a typical day right now is not very typical, right? I think uh, for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been kind of crazy, basically working with kids at home, trying to submit grants, um, you know, while uh, your daughter is uh, trying to follow school and your youngster is uh, trying to drive you mad. And so it's uh, <laughs> finally they're back to school. So, you know, it's... Uh, trying to go back to a little bit of normalcy, but normally, let's say, before this whole thing came down, um, my typical day can be very different. I mean, I can, um, when I do a lot of microscopy work, work, I can start a day by, you know, just starting right at doing acute brain slices and locking myself in the dark with a microscope and spending the whole day there and then just running home in the end of the day. Um, usually those days are pretty tiring um, or it can basically be spent at a desk doing desk work most of the day doing analysis, reading um, meetings right now uh, definitely meetings are one of the most <laughs> time consuming activities of the week uh, when doing behavior it's, it's basically one day after the next sometimes for a whole month it's you know you go to the vivarium you spend the day Day running animals and, uh, and baby solving problems and running animals and solving problems and for a month and you get attached to them and it's horrible at the end. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's more or less how it how it goes. Yes. You have and you continue to supervise and tutor many students, including our colleague Margarita, <laughs> as they train to become researchers. Uh, what do you think is the hardest and the most rewarding part of this of this part of your job? Yeah, so there's several hard parts. Um, I think, uh, especially when you are still not at the level of PI, where you you know, when you're still doing bench work like I am, uh, it's tough to be to have to um, basically manage your own work with some you know the work of somebody else that's working for you and that needs very close supervision and mentorship. Right, so you really it, it's really important to balance what you're doing with being able to to supervise someone else. Um, I think it's also I, I think I have to say as a scientist one of the most difficult things is to manage people. Definitely, I think that's a big challenge, and uh, it can go very wrong. And I think unfortunately a lot of people don't have enough training on that to be able to do. A good job to so that this interaction is is fruitful for everybody, and I think for me, for example, one difficult thing is how you transmit some when you're not happy with something, right? When you know your your student is doing something that needs to improve, you know how to transmit that in a um, a constructive way um, without hurting people's feelings. I don't know. I always have that problem. <laughs> so, but it's important, right? Because it's part of training. We have to tell people when there's something that is not going well and that that needs to be improved on. 
Right. Um, in terms of the rewarding part, um, I think it's really rewarding to see someone learn and grow as a scientist. And, you know, after one or two years, uh, being a totally different person from when they started, or not totally different, but, you know, having evolved considerable, considerably. And um, for me, that's the most rewarding to have uh, the feeling that you, you, you had an impact on, on, on someone's development as, as a scientist. In the same topic, do you think it's important that uh, research centers start giving courses and guidance to supervisors? Definitely. I think that's, uh, that's crucial. I think most people become, come to the point of, of supervising other people or, as I was saying, even SPIs without knowing how to manage people. And actually, I, I, I did um, have an interview with, with someone that's doing her master's exactly on on, on this topic and um, and I think um, is interested in, in developing a workshop for to address these kind of um, issues which I think are fundamental. Yeah absolutely it's really important the relationship between supervisor and student. Yes. Um, so did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist or was there a particular moment when you realized you wanted to do scientific research? Yeah, to be honest, I don't quite remember uh, when I decided that I wanted to do science. Uh, I remember in high school being quite torn between um, science and arts. I, I enjoyed both a lot. Um, and uh, my reasoning of going into science was that, oh, you know, arts, I can go back to it. I don't really need to have uh, extensive training to be an artist or whatever, uh, which is a complete uh, silly thing to think. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I will never do arts uh, now <laughs> because I should obviously start it earlier if I had that interest. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so I... I, I um, I deliberately chose biochemistry in university because I wanted to do research that I remember. Uh, I mean, at the time I could choose because I had good grades. I could have gone into med school, I, but I didn't want to because I didn't want to be a medical doctor. Uh, although I have to say, if, you, if one wants to be a scientist, I think that's, um, that's also a, a good path to, to go through. But at the time, for me, I thought by doing biochemistry made more sense to become a researcher. Um, and, and after, when I was finishing my degree, uh, I definitely was looking forward to do a PhD to, um, to start doing research. What do you think are the best and the worst things about your job? Uh, yes. Um, I guess the best things are, are freedom, I guess. Freedom to, to, to think about what you want to do, to decide what's your next experiment, and even a certain freedom in, in schedule. You can kind of um, you know, make your own schedule. Although I think people sometimes may think, oh, you know, you can not work so much if you don't. It, it doesn't work like that, of course, because if you don't work enough, then you also are not going to, um, you know, be productive and, 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 and have a career in the end. But uh, um, I think, yeah, I think freedom is, is one of the best things. Also, if you go, for example, into industry, your freedom is not the same, although you can also do research. So I, I would say the freedom of, of doing something that interests you and it's, 
you know, intellectually rewarding would be one of the most, uh, one of the, the biggest plus in being a scientist. Um, in terms of the worst things right now, um, I would say the worst thing is precarity. Um, unfortunately, uh, the science career in Portugal, not only in Portugal, but, but particularly now in Portugal, is very worrying. I mean, I, uh, I'm not only worried about myself because I'm not sure uh, right now, I'm not convinced I will have my own lab. <laughs> uh, I find that that will be very difficult. But about science in general, because uh, I just think, see things evolving in a way that I, I think a lot of the people which are currently postdocs will be unemployed very soon. Um, there are some things which move in the right direction, for example, trying to um, have postdoc contracts instead of postdoc fellowships. I think that's important. The problem is that uh, there's very little money going into labs right now to fund projects. Um, and in order to have postdoc contracts, you need projects, right? Because projects are the ones that have uh, money to hire people. And right now, I just don't understand the path that we're going uh, how is it possible that everybody that is on a postdoc fellowship right now will be able to be absorbed um, and be paid as a, you know, as a regular contract? I really don't see it. And I'm not even saying, like, we're going to lose half the people. I mean, I, I think it's going to be much worse than that. So either something changes quite soon or, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of really well-educated, high-expertise people being lost that may have to immigrate or, or go into different, um, different kind of jobs. Uh, and I'm in that same boat. You know, I have, I have uh, fortunately, I got a, a contract, one of those contracts from FCT, um, the individual scientific... Very percent ones, right? Exactly. Yeah, I don't even the name is so complicated. Before it was easier. It was FCT investigator. Now it's I, I don't even remember the name. But but fortunately, it's it's very. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have one because you know these things are very competitive and a lot of luck is involved. Uh, and it's a contract for six years, which is great. But in the end, not I'm not I'm not sure what's going to happen because yeah because then it's basically again uh, maybe five percent chance of <laughs> of getting the next time around so at the same time you know i'm applying for for grants and etc which also have a five percent chance of being financed so it's it's really complicated and when in my case me and my husband are both researchers dependent on fct grants because there's not a lot more um things that we can apply to I mean, we try of course but um you know when 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 the country's major funding agency is so unreliable uh, it's very complicated to, to have two people working in science in the same household. So I, I'm sure, I, I don't think we'll both make it. <laughs> do you think we can do anything to push the government into changing this? Because I think we need a really big change in, in, in a short amount of time. And I don't think that's going to happen, sadly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think basically we have, we have to make noise, I guess. Uh, we have to continue to... Well, there's there's at least some some uh, um, associations like the, the National Association for for Science Researchers that I know that they are being very active and they they were part of the 
the reason why um, postdocs started having contracts. Um, but you know, I think a constant push needs to be to be done. I think there, you know, a concerted push with, with people from all the institutes and the PIs and so on. And I think very very uh, soon because there was um, um, that rule that after a certain point, you know, uh, which I forget, it was maybe in 2019. Um, there's going to be a limit on how many the, the number of years of, of you can have as a postdoc, and after that you cannot have a fellowship anymore. You, you, you need to go into a contract, and I, that's the reason why I'm saying that there's going to be a lot of unemployed people very soon, and we really have to, you know, this has to come out, and and um, otherwise there's no solution uh, on site, and I'm not sure if there's even going to be time to come up with a solution for all these people. But um, definitely this has to be known and uh, this has to be transmitted not only to the government, but to, to, to the general people, right? And for that, it's very important, you know, to communicate that with society in general, because for example, um, I was really proud, you know, of, of the scientific community with, with all the, the COVID problem, because, you know, it's thanks to a lot of, of the scientific institutes that, uh, that um, testing, uh, you know, an increase in testing became possible within a short period of time. There's a lot of institutes that do testing, including Champalimau, including uh, IMM and CEDOC. There's a lot of institutes doing, doing that, right? And I think... And for free. And for free, yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not all of them, I think, but maybe in some cases... Thankfully, not all of them, but a lot of people are volunteering. At least in my institute, yeah. it was all volunteer. Yeah. So, so it, in that in that uh, sense, yes, there's uh, several people also from Champalimau that uh, that volunteer to to do testing and so on. Um, you know, that's the thing. So we we have to at the same time that this is happening, there's a disaster in terms of funding in Portugal. I mean, FCT is like devoting so little of its own money even to the to the projects that guarantee the bread and butter of, of, of labs in Portugal, right? Uh, and and uh, I think this is something that needs to be to be put out in the open and, and to explain that if if you want a scientific community which is vibrant and is capable of coming up with solutions when you have a pandemic like this. You need critical mass. You you need you need to have people, right? And and uh, and very quickly there will be a big reduction because there simply isn't um, the structure and the means to keep people working the way they are. And we're going to lose a lot of people with, in which already a lot of money was spent, right? A lot of and and uh, it, we really need to think about this balance of how many people do you do we really want to have on a PhD fellowship, right? If we, I mean, what can we offer these people afterwards? How can we really um, gain from from all this uh, expertise and knowledge, right? So it has to be th thought out in all stages. It's not like, oh yeah, let's just put a lot of money now into producing PhDs because we don't have enough PhDs in Portugal. And uh, no, I mean we have to really think through the whole career and and the possible ways that we can um, benefit from from having people doing this sort of higher education. Yeah, there needs to be um, motivation, not just for a PhD, but then we need to know that after a PhD, we can continue our career and not live precariously. 
Exactly, which is what happens right now. And even if it's yeah. not to continue in academia, right? But uh, it's it's something that needs to be well thought of and not just, you know, spend money like crazy just to produce a higher number of, of PhDs. Yeah. So what is the most important lesson you have learned in your career so far? Uh, yes, uh, there are several. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to choose just one thing. Um, you don't have to. I don't have to. Okay, yes. I, I was suspicious that I could. <laughs> yeah, so I think one of the very important things, uh, you should really choose your topic well, something that you really, you're really passionate about. It's, it's very important. It's one of the major things. If you're not doing something that really interests you, um, it will be tough to endure some of the least good things about research. Um, you really need that interest and that drive to, to take you through the thing. Um, it's also important, very important to choose a good supervisor. Very important. Not only someone that is good as a mentor, there's good scientifically, but it's, it's someone that is a nice person <laughs> and knows how to manage people. Again, we go back to the same topic of, of managing. Uh, because if you end up working for someone that publishes only science and natures and cells and whatever, the top tier journals, but uh, doesn't treat its, its people right and, you know, um, puts several people working in the same project on a competition basis to see whoever gets the high profile publication sooner, that's not going to be healthy and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not good for you. Uh, one other important thing um, in, so I've, I've been, of course, in different labs, and uh, one f thing that I, I always thought it would be important would be to have an experience in, in different topics, and I still think that's important. But one thing that I think didn't work well for me, and I think um, we should bear in mind, is not to change too much uh, from, let's say, a PhD to a postdoc, because it's good to keep something similar. So that, you know, we don't start from zero again and you really have, you know, let's say you continue on the same topic, but you change the, the kind of approach, right? Or you uh, go to a different topic, but you keep some of the techniques so you already feel confident in your expertise and there's something that you keep common and, you know, kind of helps you uh, on, onto your next step. So that's, I think, something important that I've learned during my career. You have talked about the importance of finding a good supervisor and finding a good environment to work in. Do you have any advice for people looking for uh, supervisors, uh, how they can see if the, they're going to get along with the person, but also assess if it's a positive environment in the lab? So it's very important to visit the lab and talk to the people. Very important, not only to the PI, but to the people that, that work there. This, this is really important. I think you don't go to a lab if you don't talk to the people. That, that doesn't work. You, you have no idea how the PI is if you don't talk to the people that work for them. Uh, and in that sense, I was really lucky. Um, many times some in the labs I visited, I, I remember this one, one PhD student, she sat down with me and she told me exactly what she didn't like about her PI. 
and she was very very honest about it and 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 I, I really appreciate it because uh, you know I could see maybe that life is not for me right and uh, this is really important and of course it's not always easy to understand right but usually if it's a really bad place you 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 can tell you can tell and and sometimes pis when they're it's not a good environment pis will not want you to talk to the people yeah. so yeah it's a red flag <laughs> big one, <Yeah>. big one. <laughs> Okay, you've worked abroad both in the US and in Japan. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences, like the differences in the way of life and also in how research is done in those countries? And why did you decide to come to Portugal after that? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure how much I my experience in Japan uh, is really... Um, evidence of the thing as a whole, because I, I was working there just for like three months during my PhD. So this is also a long time ago. So I'm, I bet things have changed in the meantime, I hope. Um, but I was working for a company. It was the Nippon Telephone and Telecommunications Company that had uh, basic research laboratories. Most people there, you know, work with things that had nothing to do <laughs> with uh, with what I was doing, which I was interested in neurotransmission. But there was a lab there that had um, developed these sensors for, for glutamate, and this was really interesting for my project. And, yeah, and it was a, a really cool experience because Japan is just so different. Uh, but first of all, it's, you know, an experience in a company is very different than basically a public university environment where I was before. You know, it, I, I couldn't go in anytime I wanted. I couldn't go in on the weekends. You know, the last one who leaves the lab has to close everything. It was really very, and also, I guess, because being in Japan, things were very strict, very, you know, and, and for me, that was a, a big change. Um, it was also a very uh, lonely experience in a way because um, the Japanese society is very closed and um, they're really not very open to foreigners. And... Um, I guess the people that I've interacted the most with that were other foreigners. They kind of kind of pushed the foreigners onto their little corner. Yeah, I and mean, for me, it was in the beginning, was and I was like 21, or, so for me, it's a big, big change. And I, I could deal well with this situation, but I, I imagine a lot of people probably wouldn't be able to cope. But it was like, you know, you go, or you go there in the morning, you sit in your little cubicle, you have space in your lab, you go to lunch, nobody wanted to have lunch with me, only my supervisor, because they, <laughs> as I found out later, they didn't want to trouble us speaking English at, at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. My supervisor was the greatest guy. He was really nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, in, in the last, one of the last days, he confessed to me that people because <laughs> I said, you know, you don't need to come have lunch with me. It's fine. We can have lunch with the, the rest of the lab. And it's like, no, you don't understand. They don't want to have lunch with you. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, but it was it was nice, um, you know, to spend time with with my supervisor and other foreigners. Um, but you know, even even like the you stay in, in in the company housing, everything is done to kind of isolate you and not not have social contact with other people. I mean, in the end, of course, I would go out during the weekends and sightseeing with other people and so on. But it's really it was really. Way I don't know, and and uh, also I found it a very, very strange society uh, because you know still like 
there was a big uh, segregation between men and women from even in, in schools many times. But you can see, you know, through the whole society, there's not a lot of, I mean, this, this is a long time ago, okay? So maybe things have changed. But <laughs> I, was, I was really shocked of how, you know, men and women still live in their own worlds. And um, women were supposed to, you know, yeah, fine, they study, they have a career until like about 25 when they marry and have kids and then that's it. They, are not, they were not expected to continue and having their own career, which for me at that time already, it's like, how, how can this be? This is crazy. And, and later on, when I, when I had um, Japanese colleagues in the US, um, one of my colleagues, she said, you know, it's, it's really tough because there's no such thing as babysitting. You know, there's no such thing as babysitting because women are supposed to just stop working and take care of kids when, you know, when, when they have kids. That's it. So, yeah, this was a long time ago. It's almost like 20 years, I think. But I, I really hope things have changed because it's, it's, um, it's for me, still hard to understand how such an advanced society in other things can be so, you know, uh, not advanced in others. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, in terms in terms of the U.S., yeah, that's where I spent spent a lot of my time um, as a postdoc. It's a very vibrant uh, community in terms of science. Uh, at least I, I was in New York, and there's a lot of uh, institutes there, a lot of critical mass. It's also a bit of more hostile environment. Uh, one of the things that I noticed when I came back to Portugal was um, how everybody seemed so friendly and nice and, you know, it's so easy to, you know, people are so empathetic. And uh, I realized really that that over there is not the same thing. You know, there's a lot of, you know, pleasantries and, uh, and how people interact with each other, but all at a very superficial level and you're kind of on your own and you, you know, you have to make it. While here, people almost hold you by the hand and you know show you around and what you have to do and don't have to do and people are really friendly and I have to say this is one of the big pluses of living in Portugal is how friendly and nice people are um, but yeah over there it's different I mean of course funding is again a problem um, there's no money for everybody of course uh, but it's different it's different there's more money in general there's more waste in general um, but uh, but you in, you can you know the fact there's so many so many people working in high level around you you have you have exposure to a lot of um, different things and um, and a lot of people doing high end research close by and uh, there's a lot of opportunities and it's a very big environment which I think is is a big difference to when you work of course in a, a smaller country. Although I have to say that, you know, uh, I, I, I'm lucky at Champalimau, there's a lot of uh, great interaction between people and, and I th it's also a very high-end environment, uh, especially for Portugal. Uh, but it's a smaller environment as compared to, to what I was experiencing in, in, in New York, of course. And actually my lab, I should say, is kind of divided. So Neurobiology of Action Lab now has... As I moved here, my boss is moved yeah. over there, <laughs> which yeah. is a bit awkward. But we're, we're, the lab is kind of split still between New York and, and Lisbon. Yeah. So do you feel there was more competition in the U.S. than here between scientists? Definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so here is a lot more friendly over there, a lot more competitive. And again, I was lucky that I was never in the lab 
where there was this kind of competition. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but you can see it. You see a lot of crazy stuff over there. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. That's scary. Which country did you prefer in terms of doing research? Which country? Uh, so, as I said, in Japan, it was a very particular setting of being in a company. Um, I'm not sure how it would be to do um, science in a university. But, you know, because of all these society details, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if I would enjoy it because um, I don't think that the woman there feels, uh, you know, is, 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 as, is treated the same way as a man. I, I hope. Nowadays, things are different. I really do. I, I'm not sure how it is right now. But just just that for me would be a big uh, deterrence. Uh, in terms of the US, I, I enjoyed doing science there. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, it can be a tough environment. If I could get good conditions, if I would get, let's say, as, as the head of the lab, if I would have good conditions here, I would definitely prefer to work here. Um, And I, or, or I guess in other countries in Europe, I, I would not, I would not like to go back to the U.S. because of that. Uh, so we are both big fans of anime, the Japanese cartoons. And since you have been to Japan, we wanted to ask if you like anime as well, and if so, what is your favorite? <laughs> Uh, I like anime in general, but uh, I, yeah, it's going to be very disappointing. I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really, I, I, I don't have much time lately to, to follow those interests because you know, with kids, after I had kids, that's it. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of things fell behind. I don't even remember the last anime movie that I've watched. I, yeah, so <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I don't have maybe, much to... Maybe you can watch them with, with your kids sometimes. I do, <laughs> although I have the feeling... Yeah, usually, the you know, Japanese cartoons are a bit more for grown-ups, no? They yeah. are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for older yeah. kids. Yeah, my kids are still young. Uh, we'll get to that point. Uh, I don't know if uh, Dragon Ball is considered anime or not. But, It is, uh, yeah, of course. They, they started... Yeah, yeah. I, I had a big thing for Dragon Ball when I was in college. I, I, I thought that was awesome. We used to watch it. It was a big thing back then, really. Yeah. Uh, and um, and my, my, my son, which is, is four, he, he came talking about Son Goku, or Son Goku, like he says. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm like, where, where did you hear that? Because... You're, you're not in the age range to watch Dragon Ball. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's not for you yet. <laughs> But apparently someone, some, some of his friends, uh, I guess his father, started initiating him on, on Dragon Ball probably because he didn't remember quite <laughs> how, how the series goes and you know, some of the stuff that happens in some episodes that I, I don't think is still proper for young kids to see. <laughs> I yeah. watched Dragon Ball when I was quite when, when I was quite little, actually. When I was like yeah. eight, maybe not four, but eight, probably. <laughs> I was watching Dragon Ball. <laughs> yeah, but you know, hopefully, you didn't realize some of some aspects no, of it, which were a bit no. racy at the time. <laughs> some of the things just go over your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. It's good. <laughs> um. What was your most exciting finding so far and one that you're really proud of and that was maybe a turning point in your career? 
So I think without a doubt, it was uh, the major finding that I had on my previous postdoc where I found that um, uh, not all uh, dopamine internals, so, so basically going back to the topic, I was studying dopamine neurotransmission. So how dopamine gets released from, from uh, um, individual boutons. Uh, and what I realized was, um, so I was part of, of this big effort on, on developing what was called as false, uh, false fluorescent neurotransmitters, which is basically a, a fluorescent dopamine analog uh, that we could just incubate brain slices with and just visualize how it gets released from, from dopamine boutons. And what I have realized was that uh, the vast majority of dopamine boutons are able to accumulate dopamine, but they cannot release it. And we tried with uh, even uh, big stimuli like depolarizing with uh, potassium chloride, which is a really big depolarizing stimulus that usually drives neurotransmission heavily. And only about, um, actually I even forgot the number, but it's less than a quarter of these, of these uh, boutons can actually release the neurotransmitter. Which was, which was really puzzling at the time. And uh, what we were able to find out was that calcium goes in when you depolarize these, these uh, boutons, uh, which is, um, if, if you don't know how neurotransmission works, it's totally dependent on calcium. Usually when, um, let's say, the electrical stimulus or the depolarization reaches the terminal, calcium channels open, calcium gets in, and the calcium binds to particular proteins uh, that then induce the fusion of these packages of neurotransmitter with the, with the plasma membrane and the neurotransmitter comes up, right? Now, uh, what we realized is that calcium was still going in, into the glutons, but then somehow vesicle fusion was not occurring because dopamine was not coming out, okay? So this was really surprising. And I was very happy uh, when I saw uh, another study from a different lab come, by, uh, come out um, a few years later, where a few years, uh, maybe one or two years later, basically saying, uh, confirming that and saying that a lot of these term terminals lack some of the proteins that prime uh, synaptic vesicles that have the dopamine inside to the plasma membrane um, of, of these terminals. So uh, biochemically showing that indeed this, the, these synaptic boutons do not, are not able to uh, release uh, the neurotransmitter. Um, so that, that, that is awesome. And I, you know, eventually I would like to go back to that topic and understand why, why this happens and how can they, they can be recruited. Yeah, that would be the most interesting, puzzling finding that I had. Do you think it's selective or is, or is it random, the, the specific neurons that are capable of releasing? Oh, I, I'm sure this is, um, this is uh, not random. Um, and uh, I mean, we're, we're not sure exactly. Uh, we don't think that it's like just a particular neuron that cannot release. I, I, I would guess that some uh, terminals of a particular neuron can release and some cannot. Now, why do some have the ability to do so and others don't? That's the big question. And how can we modulate it? And that could you know, also have implications because as you know, Parkinson's disease is um, a disease where you have not enough dopamine. If you know, 
you can mo- mobilize more of these terminals to, to release dopamine, it could have some sort of impact in, in treating um, you know, a disease that suffers from lack of dopamine, for example. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really exciting. <laughs> so I think we already talked a little bit about this in the context of uh, job stability, but is there any other thing that you would like to change or that you think should be changed to make research more efficient or to improve the way it's done? Yeah, I mean, so many things, right? But I think um, uh, one of the biggest things, really, especially when we think about um, our country, is to really think about the science career and where to put the money, because we don't have a lot of money, right? And uh, we just have to spend it wisely. And right now that is not happening, Um, not only in terms of the proportion of funding for PhD fellowships or for funding of postdoctoral scientists, for funding of PIs, the funding of the labs, how much money goes into projects. Because, you know, one of the interesting things uh, is that um, only a very small percentage of FCT's budget actually goes to fund the R&D projects, research and development projects, uh, which to me doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of money being spent on other things that don't really even have a call that, you know, that there's not really a, a, a transparent method of selection of where, why this money is going here or there. So, so that's, that's a big thing. Um, the other could be, you know, at the level of institutions, I, I think in the Champagne world, Things work pretty well. There's, um, in terms of, of how the institute um, uses uh, or has a lot of core facilities that uh, can be used by the different uh, researchers. I think this is a, a type of um, structure that is, you know, being implemented in, in many other places. Um, but and it's very important. For example, where I, where I was doing my PhD, this was not the case, and I think things are involving for this uh, situation more and more and also communication between institutes because uh, when you have an institute with a lot of core facilities of microscopy of microbiology etc etc i think it's important that uh, other institutes that may have less money be able to you know at least come and use the services yeah, even if it's in a, on a paid format because i think that can really expand the types of experiments and approaches that, that, that you can have. I think those, those are really good ideas and they're not, they don't seem that hard to implement, I think. Some of them, yeah. <laughs> now, the, the funding situation, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what I've heard, yeah. If, you, if it's just like moving money around instead of putting more money in, it seems a, a little bit easier, but you need the, you yeah. need the people to do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a big mystery that nobody understands. Uh, I mean, I guess they do, but we just don't know about it. But uh, yeah, no, it's. I think more money is necessary as well. Of definitely. course, yeah. And for that, I think it's important to really um, to have the to, to influence public opinion on it, right? And I think it's as I said, it's it's a huge opportunity that will be missed the COVID times because it's now yeah. society understands that scientists are important for something, right? But but we can't do things without money and we can't continue to exist without funding. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's an important time to raise awareness and to increase funding in science 
and to spend the money wisely, which is the thing which I think right now is, is disastrous and needs to change. I've talked with a lot of people during these COVID times and I, I, I've realized how, uh, how wrong their, their view on scientists really is, yeah. to be honest, that the things that they think we actually, we do and we have, and we actually don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that one specific example was, uh, that people think we get paid to publish and that that's why most papers are, uh, have a paywall. And that, that, that money is necessary to pay for the scientists that did the work. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people have the, 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 they don't really know how the reality is in our community. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's also our responsibility to, to clarify that, right. And to really mm -hmm. raise awareness for what we do and how things work and why is it important and why should they care? Right. Yeah. So in an ideal world in, in which we don't have these problems, if you had all the funding you wanted, what would you like to research? It's funny, I, I've been asked that question before and um, I, you know, it's the topic I'm interested in studying is still the same. I, I, I would still want to do this. Uh, I guess what would change is what I would be able to do, right? I would be able to oh, really, you know, hire people to work for me. I, <laughs> I would be able to to get a lot of expensive material to to really uh, drive things forward. You know, there are certain things which are, um, especially in Portugal, we don't really have the money, like even like a two-photon microscope system, which you know is, is very expensive, but it, it can really uh, be used to 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 advance things, especially if you're looking at uh, neurotransmission, like I like I am, and visualizing synapses and etc. And uh, definitely, you know, there's technically things evolve very quickly. And, and in order to work in state-of-the-art techniques with cutting-edge technology, you, you need money. And, and there, that's where a lot of, you know, unlimited funds would, would make a big difference. So if you could have any scientist in the world as a mentor, living or not, who would you choose? Yeah, that's a really tricky question because uh, <laughs> um, because you, you know it's hard to tell because as I said, uh, a great mentor may not be a great scientist, right? And you think you know there's a lot of people I admire, for example, Rita Levi Montalcini is like this uh, this lady that that worked in in neuros in in neurotrophins. She was one of the first to to discover um, like nerve growth factor, NGF, uh, and she, she was amazing. She, she did like exper experiments in her, own, in her own room or in her own apartment when, uh, you know, during the war and so on. She, she, and she lived until she was a hundred and something. And I actually, I actually saw her at, at uh, neurotrophin uh, meetings back then when I was studying neurotrophin transmission. And uh, she's like, I was, you know, really impressed with with her. And at the hundred something, she was still still wearing heels, and, and so I'm <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, but I don't know her. I don't know. I don't know how good a mentor she is, and I don't know how it would be to work for her. And, and for me, that that's the biggest thing, right? So right now, I guess I, you know, Rui Costa is actually a pretty good mentor. <laughs> he's a is is a busy is a busy person, um, but. Uh, It's, it's for me one of the best things I value. It's someone that can mentor you and, and point you to the right direction. 
um, and someone that cultivates a good environment in the lab. And right now we have that, so I'm good with them, with my current mentor. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay, we know that you have participated in some science outreach activities. Uh, what is your motivation to share your knowledge in this way? Uh, I think it's it's um, cool. I have to say it's not. Um, this is f fairly recent. Uh, I, I haven't been involved in science communication for a long time. Well, sort of, sort of. I've, I, it's now that I think about it, I did participate in Ciencia Viva things since my 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 PhD, um, and um, I I enjoy I enjoy it because it's. Um, it's so surprising sometimes uh, to talk with, with younger people. And it's, for me, super fun, really, to see, uh, especially like younger kids or, or not so young, but usually people that uh, still don't have a science, science education, right? And see how, you know, the kind of questions that they, that they throw at you. <laughs> it's just awesome. I, I find it super fun and, and rewarding. Uh, and I, I really enjoy doing it Try, because I, I think it, it really, I, I find it amazing to see how these little heads work sometimes. You know, when you think about younger kids, like even in kindergarten, I've, I've done some stuff with kids in kindergarten. And it's just, uh, it, they really surprise you, I have to say, with the thing, the kind of things they ask you. And for me, I find it, I find it very, very fun. And I think it's important, as I was saying, I think it's really important to communicate with, uh, with non-scientists and, and first of all I think it's important that people have a certain knowledge of, of what science is and, and what, what it can do for, for, for people in general um, and I think it's important that we are able to communicate that and I think it's important not only as people are really developing like when they're kids um, but also, in a way, aiming at an older public, which I haven't done much, but I, I also think it's important. And I, for example, I signed up for the something that was, is going to happen actually in April, which which are these sessions to clarify about about vaccines uh, because of the the COVID vaccine. Because I, I think it's just so important because a lot of people are afraid of vaccines, right? So I mean, this this is a very important topic, and it needs really to be clarified. To the limit because I, I think there's a lot of fear uh, and people have to understand you know that there's really no reason to be afraid or at least you know the the, the benefits of having this vaccine vaccine far outweighs any potential risk for minor side effects and um, this is an example of why it is it, it is so important to to, do, to communicate your science properly and, and to do outreach to the society. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's great. Um, do you also feel like uh, talking to non-scientists can help you see your work or science in a different perspective? Yeah, I mean, you can always, you know, it's um, when you're, Kind of getting out of your comfort zone and getting out of the box, let's say, uh, you can really get surprised with a different way of looking at things, right? And this can happen when you have interaction between people which have very different backgrounds, even scientists of different backgrounds, um, but also people that are not scientists. And sometimes a question from someone from a child can really make you think, 
right? And and yeah. can kind of, you know, I'm not saying this happens every day, but but uh, it's something that can really surprise you, make you think differently about um, a certain topic. And who knows? Maybe a great idea will come out out of that interaction. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you like to do when you're not working? Oh, I like sleeping so much, but unfortunately, <laughs> my kids are still not at the stage where they <laughs> sleep properly. But yeah, that's I really love sleeping. But besides that, <laughs> when I'm awake, <laughs> I like I, I like doing outdoor stuff. I like biking a lot. I used to bike a lot when I was in New York. Um, we're start, starting to bike a little bit here uh, as well. Although with two kids is a bit more challenging than one, but we're, we're getting there. Um, I, you know, I love doing stuff with friends. Uh, this has been tough, not only because, you know, as when I got to Portugal, I, I got a, my second child. And, uh, you know, at that point it becomes complicated, but, but uh, also because with the pandemic, with the pandemic um we're just basically not socializing anymore so unfortunately i miss my friends a lot i <laughs> i really like to spend time so hopefully we all get vaccinated soon to be able to do that again and going to the movies i miss so much going to the movies in in the, again i it's like it's so frustrating because when my kids are, are just getting to the point where oh yeah let's get babysitters and let's go out for dinner go have a movie go for a movie and so on now the pandemic hits and again, we have to wait until we're all vaccinated. But yeah, so that's a few of the things that eventually I would like to go back. Uh, Hopefully soon. Yeah, it's something to look forward to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, a more serious question. Did you ever feel like you had to work harder or to prove your capabilities in your field because you're a woman? Um, I think I was lucky that that didn't happen. I think the only time where I really felt a strong uh, thing, you know, between women and male standards was when I was in Japan. For me, I kind of, you know, it was a very temporary position. I didn't, it re didn't really affect me a lot, but but I was I was pretty shocked at, at how things worked. Um, and uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. People would get really. Um, almost offended with, with uh, I guess, the way that, you know, if I'm talking with someone and that person, I don't know if, if I, I couldn't understand the English well, and I, I repeat what you're saying without, uh, you know, trying to understand. And the guy felt so annoyed because I, he felt I was correcting him. He didn't want to work with me anymore. Um, another interesting thing is that there's, over there, there was not even the... Um, you know, the politeness thing where, you know, a man lets you walk through the door. No, men go first. So I guess I pissed off a lot of people because I kept cutting in front of them. But, but you know, apart this these side notes, I, I, I really thought over there it was it was very frustrating. I, I can't imagine being how, how, it, how it was at that time being a woman doing science there. But, um, but my supervisor was great and he was not like that at all. So I, I didn't... You know, since I was lucky to be working with him, I, I didn't really um, have a problem. Um, sometimes I, I did feel when I was in the US, certain patronizing from some colleagues, but I, I feel that they were, they had a bit that alpha male syndrome uh, where they not only uh, think they are 
better than women. They they feel they have to prove that they're better than any other men. And um, yeah, I just felt that was a bit of an annoying attitude that didn't affect me too much. Again, my supervisors, I think I was really lucky because I did not have one single supervisor that I felt that, um, you know, that felt of me differently as a researcher because I was a female? Not at all. I, I, they were all men, with the exception is my current uh, co-supervisor in Bal, Israel. But apart from that, from her, they were all men. And fortunately, none of them, I think, ever made a distinction when whether I or anyone else was a man or a woman. Uh, I, although, you know, you, you do notice, of course, uh, and this, I think, is worse in the U.S., that, you know, most of the top positions are men. Are men. And not only men, they're white men. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like someone would say, I, I want to, there was this um, researcher, she, she said, yeah, you know, you look at these people, and, and she was talking about this new institute that, uh, that was um, starting, and she was... Um, she was part of it, and she said, "You know, you look at this group of, of, of directors, and they're all this, they're all going to die of the same virus because they're all the same. They're all middle-aged white men, you know. And uh, unfortunately, there's there's this guy clubs thing, which, um, yeah, it's much more present than we may realize." Uh, Right? And I think because I was always a bit sheltered from that because my supervisors were totally not like that, I never felt it too strongly. But I, you know that, that happens for sure. And I think the good part is here in Portugal, I think we are far ahead any other place I've worked. I think there's a lot of equality between men and women uh, in science. So where do you see your career going in the future? Perhaps you will be one of the top scientists in your <laughs> institute. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of talked about this already a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's, uh, it's complicated. It's complicated because I've been a postdoc already for a long time. And I think this is a common thing for to a lot of people nowadays. Uh, when I moved to Portugal... Um, it was a bit on for personal reasons. My 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 husband, who is also a scientist, had um, got a FCT fell, um, investigator um, contract to be, start his own lab at uh, Nova University at Sedoc. Uh, we had a young daughter at the time, so you know it becomes that situation where you know we have to both move, right? So I uh, at that point I was still finishing up my, my studies over there. When I came, my paper was still, you know, waiting to be uh, accepted. So I was not in a position to apply for, for jobs as a, as a PI. And I joined another lab as yet another senior postdoc kind of position. And, uh, and then since then, I had another child and so on. So, you know, things didn't go as smoothly as I would like. And it's, it's just not easy, as I can see, once you move back, uh, to be in a position to um, to get your own lab, and um, yeah, so I, as I said, I, I, I was lucky to get a, a SEC contract from FCT, and uh, but I'm I'm not sure because of the current stage of funding that 
how much further will, will I be able to to go and whether I, I will be able to get my own lab. If not, let's see. I don't know. I have other interests. I, I like writing a lot. I, I, I enjoy science communication. So those are potentially things that I that I could uh, be interested in doing. Um, unfortunately, there's no not much industry or biotech uh, going on in Portugal. So I'm, I don't think that would be a, a possibility, but who knows? You know, and also the pandemic uh, changes things a lot. You know, it changes some things for the worse, maybe some for the better. And who knows? Uh, there are other jobs that may become available that are not physically in Portugal, but maybe they don't have to be because right now the, you know, the work from a distance become became the norm and can open maybe other possibilities like that. Yeah, there are a lot of remote uh, exactly. opportunities now. Yeah. Exactly. And finally, what advice would you give those that are at the beginning of their uh, science career or that want to start one? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't want to be too uh, negative. negative. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so let's see. I think it's good to give yourself time before you select on your PhD. Uh, I think it's an important thing. Either, you know, get into a PhD program because you'll be uh, exposed to a lot of different uh, uh, topics before you decide what really what is really interesting for you and what you really want to pursue. Because it's really crucial for you to do a good PhD in an area that you're really interested in with a good lab, a good supervisor. And, and then it's important to really think about what you want to do because, you know, it's uh, nowadays, I think everybody that starts a PhD knows that there's a huge bottleneck. You know, I have to say that back then, I did not know that. If I knew that things were like this, I probably would have done things differently. Um, but I think this is something very important to keep in mind and to, at the end of, of your PhD, to really, you know, see if that's really the path you want to go through, academia, or if there's other things that are more interesting. Because, you know, a PhD in science gives you a lot of different um, um, abilities that, that you, you, you can use on, on many other different career paths. And I think it's important to, to really think about that carefully when you finish your PhD and you're thinking about what to do next. And if you want to continue, you know, I think it's always good to to get an international exposure, be out of the country, try other things, and uh, definitely choose a good, a good lab with a good mentor. That's great advice. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so we always like to play a little game with our, with our guests at the end of the interview. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> are, you, are you up for it? Uh, it's called This or That. Uh, it's very simple. Hmm. Uh, we give you two options. You choose the one you prefer and you tell us why. Okay, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, you've already talked about this, actually, but working abroad or working in Portugal? Uh, working, working abroad. <laughs> <laughs> living in Portugal. <laughs> yes, living in Portugal, working abroad. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so being the supervisor or being the student? Uh, supervisor right now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
science communication activities with children or conferences with peers? <sighs> That's so different. Why do I have to choose? <laughs> okay, I think I guess right now let's do the thing with children. <laughs> All right. So uh, lab work or data analysis? Again, I have to choose between two important things. <laughs> What do you prefer to do, not, not what you think? Yeah. <laughs> because, I, because I like both. It's really two things. You know, it's funny. It's like you, you, you spend a lot of time doing lab work. It's like, oh, this, I'm tired. I want to sit down and do analysis. <laughs> and <then laughs> spend a lot of time doing analysis. Oh, this is so boring. I keep, I'm sitting the whole day. I want to go back to the lab. It's always like this. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Let's say lab, lab work. <laughs> Last one. Writing a grant proposal or a paper? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> future or past basically <laughs> yeah i don't know i think i've i've just got so traumatized with the last <laughs> grant application <laughs> that right now i guess i yearn for writing a paper <laughs> <laughs> that's fair <laughs> all right so that concludes oh no chocolate come on <laughs> what was the other option <laughs> strawberry or chocolate <laughs> Chocolate, of course. Or both. <laughs> oh, great! Both that—that that would be a great combination. <laughs> All right. I hope you had as much fun as we did with this interview. Yes, it was fun. Thank you for giving us so much advice and uh, telling us about your experience. Are there any social media or any initiatives that you would like to let our listeners know about? Well, I guess uh, the Neurobiology of Action uh, group uh, website is a good uh, place to start to look at the things that we're doing. Definitely. All right. So we will link that in the description. So everyone make sure you go and check out the Neurobiology of Action lab. And thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. And we hope to continue to hear about your work in the future. Sure. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>